0: God speaking through Micah, the Lord's case against Israel. Listen to what the Lord says, stand up, plead my case before the mountains, let the hills hear what you have to say, hear you mountains, the Lord's accusation, listen you everlasting foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to you. Also Aaron and Miriam, my people, remember what Balak of Moab plotted. And Balaam, son of Beor, answered, Remember your journey to Shittim, to Galau, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old, Will the, Lord plead, will the Lord be pleased with the thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O oh mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Israel's guilt and punishment. Verse 9, it's, uh, listen, the Lord is calling to the city. And to fear your name is wisdom. Heed the rod and the one who appointed it. I am, st- I am still to forget your ill-gotten treasures, your wicked house, and the short ether which is accursed. Shall I acquit someone with dishonest scales, with a bag full of false weights, Your rich people are violent. Your inhabitants are liars and their tongues speak deceit. Therefore I have begun to destroy you, to ruin. You, because of your sins, you will eat but not be satisfied. Your stomach will be empty. You will store up but save nothing because what you save I will give to the sword. You will plant but not harvest You will press olives, but not use the oil. You will crush grapes, but not drink the wine. You have observed the statues of Omri and all the practices of of Ahab's house. You have followed their traditions. Therefore, I will give you over to ruin and your people to derision, and you will bear the scorn of the nations. That would be the word of the God.
1: If you're visiting here today, my name's Carl, I'm one of the pastors here, and this is our last week looking at the book of Micah, but before we dig into those words that Jeff read for us, let's bow in prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we pray now that as we reflect on those words that we've just heard, that you would speak to us through them, that your Holy Spirit would make those words alive and active in our hearing, in our hearts. That you might challenge us where we need to be challenged, encourage us where we need to be encouraged, strengthen us where we need to be strengthened. Lord, we pray that in all these things, our hope and our trust would be in you and in your salvation through Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Uh, I don't know about you, but uh, you may have noticed that uh, some people seem to feel some things more than others uh some people get really excited when they win something uh, is anyone here uh, kind of a put uh, the kind of person who gets excited about winning yeah this is some the, jacob the only person uh is there anyone who easily gets upset is there anyone who who bursts into tears easily uh or you know gets maybe gets angry easily uh we're different people, aren't we? We're different makeup, and some of that is personality. Uh, some of that is just the makeup of who we are and uh, how we've grown up and and uh, our experiences in our life. But sometimes, too, it's also because of the relative values that we uh, that we give to certain things. So, if you really don't care about winning races, then when you win a race, you won't care. But if that really drives you, if that really motivates you, when you win, you'll be flat out excited. So, too, if you don't really care much about losing something, then when you lose it, you won't get upset. But if that thing has a special place in your heart, then when you lose it, you'll probably care quite a bit. Some of our response to things is bound up with our personality, but some of it is also bound up with the importance that we attach to things. And so there are some things that we ought to care about. And in these last chapters of Micah, what we see is we see a man, a prophet, the prophet Micah, who cares deeply about what is going on in the world. He cares deeply about God and how the people around him are relating to God. Uh, and he cares deeply about God's world, about the people in God's world. Uh, he, he cares deeply because God has shown him that these Things matter and so here in these last chapters of Micah God uh, wants to show us as well things that matter, things that should upset us, and things that should inspire and encourage us as well. Well, uh, we have here again in Micah chapter six and seven Uh, At the beginning of uh, chapter 6, or in chapter 6, we have charges from God against His people. So we saw, you might remember if you were here last week, we saw that there are three cycles in Micah, and each one begins with charges that God gives against His people, and then uh, judgment, and and then hope. And again, God is announcing his charges, this time a bit like in a court of law. He says in verse 3, he begins with a question, his accusations with a question. He says, my people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Now, the implication of those questions from God to the poor God, they found that too difficult. They found that too hard. It was, a, it was heavy. Serving God was heavy. It weighed them down. It Was too much of a burden, and God goes on to kind of answer, if you like, to ask more questions, but to answer His own question, He says, "You know, was it was it too much of a burden? For example, when I rescued you out of Egypt, you're in slavery there. Was that was that when it became too hard? When I when I pulled you out on eagles' wings from Egypt, was it was it too difficult? Was it too heavy?" when I rescued you from the Moabites, that nation that was surrounding you, that was coming against you, that wanted to undermine you and to destroy you, was that when it was too hard? Was it too hard when I was saving you and protecting you and guiding you? At what point exactly, God wants to know, at what point exactly was it too difficult? It would be wrong to think that because the people that God was addressing, his people, God's people, it would be wrong to think that because God's people found it too difficult, as a result of that, they gave up and, and sort of threw in the towel of their relationship with God. They, they didn't do that on the outside, at least. They didn't sort of run away and become atheists. What they did was they just sort of gave up on the inside they still, on the outside, it still looked like everything was going great. They still had this wonderful relationship with God, but they'd given up on the insides. They kept doing quite a lot of things. They kept coming before God and bowing before God. We're told in verse 6 and 7 uh, that they that they kept expressing in these burnt offerings their devotion to God. God, God says, you know... You're doing all these things, and even if you did them even more than you, than you already are, even if you gave me 10,000 of uh, those uh, burnt offerings or 10,000 rivers of olive oil, uh, even if you gave me your own children as, as sacrifices and offerings, God doesn't want that, but he said, look, even if you gave me that, the most extraordinary thing that you could give me as a sacrifice, do you think that I would be pleased by that? And God says the, the implicit answer is no. God doesn't want sacrifices. He doesn't just want prayers of repentance. He doesn't want people to ask for forgiveness after the case rather than asking for permission. What God actually wants is people who love him and who live according to his ways. God wants people who haven't given up. For whom serving the Lord is not too weighty. What does he want? He says in verse 8, God has shown you, Micah says, what he wants and what he requires. He wants you to act justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. It's a well-known statement. It's It's a beautiful statement, isn't it really? But what does it mean? What does it mean to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your gods? Well, those ideas are explained in what Micah says in verses 9 to 12. How were the people living? Well, they'd acquired things by ill-gotten gain. They cheated people. They cheated people in their business so that they could live a more comfortable lifestyle verse 10 talks about a short ephah and ephah was a kind of unit of measurement and so what was happening was that people were selling things but they were dodging the measurements so they were charging people for the full weight but giving them less in the same way verse 11 talks about dishonest scales and false weights verse 12 talks about the rich being violent and other people being liars in other words the problem was that because the people had found serving God too hard, because it was too burdensome, because they'd really given up in their hearts, what happened was that they continued to do all the religious bits. Because actually, in some ways, that was kind of easy. It's pretty easy to turn up to the temple with a sacrifice. It's pretty easy to, you know, to give up a little bit of money. Uh, as an offering to God, what was hard was actually living for God in their daily life. What was hard was actually to have a life shaped by their commitment and their love for God. It's a bit like the husband or the wife who day-to-day in their married life never shows love or affection, never helps out with anything, never serves the other uh, person in any, any way and then... On their spouse's birthday or on Mother's Day or Valentine's Day, they they bring a a bunch of flowers to try and make up for the rest of their life. That's kind of how the people were relating to God. There was no reality in the day-to-day life. It was just that they would come to church to kind of tick the boxes and make things right. And so God says, is it too difficult to live for me? Is it too much of a burden? It's a great question, I think, uh, for us to ask ourselves. Is it too much of a burden for us to live for God? Is it a joy to live for God? Or is it a burden? Is it too difficult to live for God in your daily life? Do you look for the minimal effort, the least that you can do? Do you resent the times when... (laughs) You have to reshape your life, or you're called to reshape your life by God, by God's Word, by God's people. When you're called to reshape your life around God, is that an inconvenience? What was in your heart, maybe, as you came here this morning to, to meet with God's people, to declare the praises of God? Did you come willingly, with a heart full of joy, or did you come... Honestly, just thinking, okay, well, it's two hours and then after that uh, we can make lunch, we can get on, I can read my book, can have a nice day at home, uh, get on with all the other things that I need to do. If you came here wanting to be somewhere else, well, I'm glad you're here. But God wants us to realise that finding out our relationship with him too heavy, too burdensome is not okay that 's actually really, really insulting to god it 's actually deeply offensive. Imagine if I said that to you I said Imagine if I said, do you know actually being being friends with you is just too hard i 'm sorry it 's just i'd just really rather not. Is it okay if I just give you a present on your birthday and then Just leave it at that. It's not okay to think like that. God doesn't want our actions only. He wants our hearts. And He doesn't just want us to turn up to church. He doesn't want us simply to do the religious things, although He does want us to do some of those things as well. But what He really wants is for our whole life to be shaped by that love, that being captivated by the glory and the honour of God. So the question is, not simply, do you do the religious things, but how does your relationship with God and your love for God shape the whole of your life? The question is not just, do you turn up a church, do you read the Bible, do you pray? And all those kinds of things, they're important. But the question is also, how does your relationship with God extend beyond that? Does knowing God mean that you act fairly in your business, justly, appropriately? Does, does knowing God mean that you show mercy to the people around you? Does it mean you show mercy to your wife or husband or children? Mercy to your parents, to your workmates, to the people in your streets, the people in the supermarket? Do you walk humbly with God? That is, do you seek mercy? humbly each day to live before him dependent on him, needing him acknowledging your faults before him rather than just excusing them justifying them, defending what you've done wrong or blindly and stubbornly going on in the ways that you've always gone does your relationship with God actually shape the way that you live here's some questions to think about more sort of to drive this closer to home, if you like. That is, what decisions did you make last week that were shaped by your relationship with God? So don't just think over a lifespan, that's helpful, but what things last week were shaped by your relationship with God, by your love for God? What big decisions have been shaped by your love for God? What opportunities did you take maybe last week to show mercy to people? What sins were you convicted of this week that you took the opportunity to confess to God and to ask for his forgiveness and to turn away from, seek his strength to overcome? Are you looking for ways that your life might be shaped by your love for God, your relationship with God? Or is that too much of a burden? Are you looking for the bare minimum? It's an important question to think about, isn't it? Is serving God a burden for you Or is it a joy? Let me just give you a moment to think about that. Let me just give you a couple of minutes to think about that question and to pray about that, to probe your heart and to think, is serving God for me a burden or is it a joy? good news uh, of the gospel is that if when you look at your heart you discover that serving God is a burden rather than a joy the good news is that we can acknowledge that we can turn away from that and we can ask God to change us so that that becomes a joy rather than a burden but let me encourage you to keep asking that question well how does Micah respond he's been called by God to present these charges against the people How does he respond? Let's keep reading in Micah 7, verses 1 to 7. Micah says, What misery is mine! I am like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard. There is no cluster of grapes to eat, none of the early figs that I crave. The faithful have been swept from the land, not one upright person remains. Everyone lies in wait to shed blood, they hunt each other with nets. Both hands are skilled in doing evil, the ruler demands gifts, the judge accepts bribes. The powerful dictate what they desire, they all conspire together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright, worse than a thorn hedge. The day God visits you has come, the day your watchmen sound the alarm... Now is the time of your confusion. Do not trust a neighbour. Put no confidence in a friend. Even with the woman, who lies in your embrace. Guard the words of your lips. For a son dishonours his father. A daughter rises up against her mother. A daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the members of his own household. But as for me, I watch in hope for the Lord. I wait for my for God, my Saviour. My God will hear me. I don't know if you notice as we read through that, but Micah's pretty upset. He says, What misery is mine? He's he's like a man he says who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard. There's no cluster of grapes to eat, there's nothing there. Micah doesn't just deliver the message that God has, you people are all wicked. (laughs) He's really upset by it. He's upset by the condition of the world. There's no one faithful. Sin is everywhere. People hunt each other. They're skilled in, in evil. You can't trust each other. You can't even trust the people who are closest to you. Your husband, your wife, your friends, your family. Micah is is distressed by what he sees in the world. It's reminiscent of Acts, in uh, Paul in Acts chapter 17, where he walks through Athens and he sees the idols and he's overcome by it, he's distressed by it, he's provoked by it. Micah and the Apostle Paul weren't content just to give the message to rebuke sin in the world, to call people to faith in Jesus Christ, to give the offer of the Gospel. They were moved by what they saw. They were distressed by what they saw. They were overwhelmed by what they saw. And we need to follow that model. Paul can say in Romans chapter 9 uh, that he's so distressed by the sinfulness of his people the lostness of his people that he wishes that he himself was accursed cut off from god we need to learn to feel that same depth of misery and sadness when we see a world separated from god we need to recover the lost art of lament Micah, of course, was primarily grieving over the nation of Israel. Uh, He was sent by God to Israel. But Israel in the Old Testament is always a picture of humanity at large. That is, Israel were a people that God had gathered together in God's place, under God's rule. uh, And yet they disobeyed God, they were exiled from God, and a remnant from within them were gathered and saved. And in the same way, humanity were a people who were gathered by God in God's presence, in God's place, under God's rule, We're exiled from God because of our disobedience and God is gathering for Himself a remnant from within humanity who will be with Him forever. Israel was a kind of a a picture of all of humanity and so what Micah experiences here at the level of Israel, we ought to feel not simply over the people of God but over the whole world. We shouldn't just be distressed by the lostness of the people of God, that we sometimes see we should also be distressed as Paul was over the lostness of a world out of sync with its maker. We should particularly uh, weep, I think, over the sin among those people who do claim to know God, as Micah did. But we should also weep over the rejection of God that we see in the whole world, just as Paul did. Uh, when we see sin in the church, we should weep We shouldn't ignore it. We should confront it. We shouldn't strut around and look down our nose at everybody else. But we should weep and cry out to God. Uh, When we see evil in the world, it should drive us to pour out our hearts to God as well. As I said last week, I think that many of us are more concerned with the impact on our personal circumstances... Um, that we experience in the world uh, then we are grieved by the fact that god's name is not honored in the world so we worry about what persecution might mean for our personal circumstances and our well-being and the comfortableness of our own lives Uh, or we worry about the implications that covid might have for how pleasant our lives might be or how pleasant the lives of our children might be. We worry more about the impact on ourselves than we do about the fact that God's name is dishonoured in the world. But Micah cares about evil and sin and the rejection of God. We need to learn to lament as Micah did it's not something we really do but we need again to learn to do it this past monday afternoon i was convicted last week by some of the things that i shared from the passage in Micah, and i thought well what are we actually going to do about it that's one thing isn't it to speak a message and to say you know we really we we all need to be convicted by these things what are, what are, what am i going to actually do about it what are we going to do about it so i turned up to lunch a bit sheepishly it's on Monday afternoons at our staff, we have staff meetings, we have lunch together and then we have meetings through the afternoon. And I I said to the staff, a bit sheepishly, I said, I think think we should cancel our meetings this afternoon and pray. I thought, I I think we should pray for a couple of hours. In my heart and in my head, I was thinking, that's a lot of time, isn't it? Maybe we could just do one hour. I thought, no, let's... We've got, to, we should, we've got to do this. And so we prayed. We prayed for the church. We lamented about the world. Lamented about sin in the church. Not just our church but the church around. The evangelical church around the world. We, we prayed for mission. We prayed for people in the church. We prayed about COVID. We prayed about gender dysphoria. One of the people in our church was meeting with politicians. At that very time. We prayed for them. but we prayed. And I thought afterwards, I thought, I can't believe that in 10 years of ministry, that's the first time I've ever set aside two hours to pray like that. We need to pray. The world is in a mess. The world's out of sync with God. We need to learn to pray. Because nothing is going to change unless we learn to call out to God on our behalf and on behalf of the world. How might you do that? You could do that in your growth group this week. If you're in a growth group, you could just read those seven verses from the beginning of Micah chapter 7. You could read those and then spend the rest of your time lamenting and crying out to God, confessing your sins, the sins of the church here in Australia, around the world, confessing the sins of the world and crying out for God to act. You could do it as a family. You, as a family, could clear the calendar, unplug the TV, turn off all your devices and spend two or three hours, one night this week, praying for the world. You could invite people over to your house to pray. If you're on your own, invite some people over to pray with you. It's much easier to pray when there's other people there with you than it is to pray on your own. You could do it early in the morning before work, you could do it after dinner you also do it tomorrow evening. You could gather with others from the church. Tomorrow afternoon, I'm going to be here from five o'clock to nine o'clock in the evening and anyone who wants to come and pray for the world can come and pray with me. You don't have to stay for the whole time. You can come for 10 minutes. You can come for four hours. I don't care, but you can come and pray. You can come with your kids, but you can come and pray. Because we desperately need to learn to lament and pray and we need to teach our children as well to lament and pray and let me encourage you as you think about that to think about the sacrifices that you need to make in order to make that happen you will not find time to pray this week or in the months ahead or in the years ahead unless you make sacrifices to do it You might think to yourself, I don't have time to pray. I don't think anyone here probably has time to pray if they don't make it. But why not skip dinner one night this week? It usually takes me an hour, an hour hour and a half to make dinner and to eat dinner and to clean up. It might take even longer. But why not skip it? It's not going to kill you. It's not going to kill your children either. But why not stop Make a sacrifice, humble yourself before God, acknowledge the brokenness of yourself and the world and pray. The faithful have been swept from the land. No one upright remains. Everyone lies in wait to shed blood. What misery is mine. So Micah addresses the sin, he laments it, He cries out to God, but he doesn't lose hope. so important. He doesn't lose hope. Look what he says in chapter 7, verse 7. But as for me, I watch in hope for the Lord. I wait for God, my Saviour. My God will hear me. There's a wrong kind of lament. And we mustn't learn this kind of lament. We mustn't learn the kind of lament that leads to despair, or to inaction, you know, it's too hard, so we're not going to do anything. We need the kind of lament and sorrow that leads to hopeful expectation and waiting for God to act. Micah goes on in the rest of chapter 7, the rest of the book, to flesh out what it means that he's waiting for God to act. He says, although the walls have been broken down... The day will come when the walls will be rebuilt. People will come to God. God will shepherd his people. He'll show them his wonders. God's enemies will be destroyed. They'll lick the dust. They'll be terrified. The NIV says uh, in chapter 7, verse 17, he says, they will turn in fear to you, to the Lord our God, and will be afraid of you might sound like what's going on there is that people are turning to God in faith, fear can sometimes mean that in the Old Testament but the word there is not the normal word that's, that's used for that the word is, means to tremble and to shiver that is God will come with judgment on those who don't turn to him and they'll be terrified by it there will be a reckoning But, Micah says in the last few verses of this book, verse 18 of chapter 7, Who is a God like you, who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be faithful to Jacob, and show love to Abraham, as you pledged on oath to our ancestors in days long ago. Micah realises that although there's sin in Israel, and in the world, he recognises that God is a God who forgives. Why does God speak words of indictment and accusation, Why does he bring charges against his people? Why does he put his words into the mouth of Micah? Why does he put his words into our mouths to speak into the world? Why does he do it? Because there is a reckoning, but today is the day of salvation. He's a God who's merciful, who forgives iniquity, who hurls our sin into the depths of the sea. God doesn't stay angry forever. But we must... Turn to him in repentance and trust in Jesus. Micah doesn't lament without hope. He doesn't despair. He does what God has called him to do to speak into a world that is desperately and dangerously out of sync and in rebellion with the God who made us. Even as we pour our hearts out to God, And we bemoan what's going on in the world around us and in our own hearts. We need to keep our eyes fixed on God's promise to gather a people for himself through Jesus Christ, through the proclamation of the gospel, through our words, his words in our mouths. We need to keep our eyes fixed on that hope and do the task that God has put before us. God will build his church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we we want to acknowledge that, uh, that sometimes... Serving you is has, we have made out to be a burden. Yeah. Lord, we thought that it's been, at times it's been inconvenient. Or frustrating, or getting in the way of other things that we would like to do. Getting in the way of our hopes and aspirations and dreams for our life for how we spend our time and how we use our energy. Lord, we pray that you'd show us how deeply, deeply offensive that really is. That it's too inconvenient for us to love you and to relate to you as our maker and our God and our saviour. Lord, please forgive us for that. And please help us to trust that you forgive us through Jesus Christ and that you hurl our sins into the depths of the sea. Lord, we pray that you teach us day by day to act justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly before you. Lord, we pray that all of our lives, every single moment of every day be shaped by our love for you and our relationship with you. And Lord, as we do that and as we live that uh, and as we draw nearer to you, Lord, we pray that you would put on our hearts to the great misery of a world uh, that is at odds with you. Lord, we pray that we would be grieved not simply by the way that people treat each other and uh, abuse and hurt each other but Lord, by the way people rebel against you by the way, people hate you and organise their lives to deliberately go against your plan and purpose for this world. Lord, we pray that we will be grieved by that Uh, and grieved, Lord, not only because others do it, but because we ourselves do it as well. Lord, we pray that you teach us to lament and to pray. Lord, now more than ever, we need to learn that. And so we ask that you would teach us. And we ask that you would teach us to do that not without hope, but with the knowledge that judgment will come. And through it, you will cleanse the world of evil. But also, Lord, that in this present time, there is an opportunity for repentance. And so, Lord, we pray that we would pour ourselves out in prayer and in gospel witness that others might receive the great mercy that we have received ourselves. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.